Tonight's Dhamma talk is about the seven factors of awakening, or sometimes known as the seven factors of enlightenment. One of the most important pieces of advice that the Buddha gave, and this was around the time of his death, he said, you are the light, you are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. <clears throat> These words are often a reminder to me that what needs to uh, be developed in my own heart is possible, that there are seeds in my own heart and my own mind that can be developed and so that these factors can uh, strengthen and be alive in my own spiritual life. A few years ago, uh, I was practicing as I usually do every year, or most every year in Burma, and I was expressing to the teacher, Sayadawji Pandita, he said, why are you here? And I said, I want to clean my heart. Really wanted to clean the heart of the remaining defilements, there's still plenty, uh, that are there. There was a, nude sense, a renewed sense of urgency and interest in order to do this. And uh, I really wanted, I had, I had a lot of energy during that time and I really wanted to practice fully again. And so he said to me, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the Dhamma. You must be willing to invest everything you have in the Dhamma. And I didn't think that he meant invest, you know, my resources or my, what I had materially, but whatever the resources of my own heart were at the time, I had to put into the practice, make use of. So it was an interesting way that I realized he used the word invest because it meant that, to me, it meant at that moment that it had to come from what I already had in my own heart. To bring forth the qualities already present in the mind stream to some degree and to let that be the support for deeper purification of heart and mind. When you look at it closely, these are the seven factors of awakening. These are gradually being developed here, just through the process we're going through, through the process of being mindful, mostly. This is what uh, starts it all, what develops it all, what uh, is the cause and condition for the gaining of strength of all the other factors. The commitment that we have to explore what's going on in our own hearts and minds, the sincerity with which we bring to the practice, the continuity of effort, it doesn't have to be a strenuous effort, but just a gentle, persevering, moment-to-moment -moment effort, being really kind to ourselves. This is what we're doing here. This is what's necessary for these factors to grow and to strengthen. So these factors are, and I'll mention them again, so if you miss a few, if you're writing them down, you'll, you'll catch them later. Mindfulness is the first one, and then comes investigation, effort, and joyful interest or delight. The next three are calm, concentration, and equanimity. The knowledge of these factors has always been a source of empowerment for my practice and for everyone's practice. When we can see them as uh, they can be seen moment to moment in our practice, and when we know that they really can be developed, we actually see them being developed as we do our practice. If we're really sincere, if we're really putting forth the effort moment to moment to be with what is happening. These are the causes and conditions that contribute to a fully awakened mind. The Buddha pointed to these seven very, very succinctly 
as the causes and conditions for a fully developed, awakened mind. When a very relaxed yet clear mindful awareness is applied to the most obvious, changing, momentary experience of the four foundations of mindfulness, then these seven factors are being developed. So most of you know, but just to repeat for uh, the new ones to retreats and to to help us uh, more mature senior students know and remember, the four foundations of mindfulness are in a very simple way. The first one is mindfulness of bodily uh, experiences. The second one is mindfulness of feeling or the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings that arise during practice. The third one is mindfulness of the knowing quality of mind. And the fourth one is mindfulness of the dhammas of the mind. And you might say in a simple way, those dhammas are the various ways that the dhamma works in in our life, like the Four Noble Truths, which include the Eightfold Noble Path, the five hindrances which we have been talking about a lot during this practice, the defilements in the five hindrances, and the seven factors of enlightenment. These are but to name a few. So you're getting um, as full uh, Dhamma information as we can give you during this course of time in this retreat. So if we can be mindful of any any of these that are arising, mostly as what we've been instructing you to be mindful of whatever is predominant in the field of awareness, whether we're sitting, walking, standing, or lying down, these are the four postures. If we can bring a continuity of mindfulness to all of these, then these seven factors will be automatically developed. It results in the maturing of our practice. And we see this over the years. The Buddha said that if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly, the seven factors of enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed. So I want to highlight uh, where the Buddha said persistently and repeatedly. And again, to remind you that this isn't just This isn't like a striving or a strenuous or a um, kind of a straining effort to do anything. In our experience with the practice, we found that it's a, a balance of putting forth the effort, but also in a relaxed way, not in a way that's uh, being very tight around our practice. So with this that the Buddha said has always been a reassuring promise, in a way, to me. And when I've heard our teachers say that, I will question, you know, do you really mean that? Is that really true? And here and there I've heard a few of my teachers say, I promise you, this is true. And so when I talk about these seven factors, of course my own path is not yet finished, but um, I'm not speaking theoretically. I've seen that these do come about through practice. This is from the numerical discourses of the Buddha, talking, speaking to the monks. He said, monks, I declare that liberation by supreme knowledge has its nutriment. It is not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? The seven factors of enlightenment should be the answer, the Buddha says. So very, very important to be mindful of them in our practice. It's one of the places in the four foundations of mindfulness. It's listed as one of the four, as, as the fourth, one of the fourth foundations of mindfulness. There are great natural resources within us Along the way in practice, when we st- the mind starts to calm down a little more and we're not just totally experiencing the defilements or the hindrances 
or pain in the body or so overwhelmed by thinking, we actually start, start to experience pristine moments of concentration or calm or a rapture or joy that comes in the practice from uh, just from the energy that we put into it. We experience equanimity and of course every once in a while when the mind gets really um, refined in its seeing capability, experiencing capability, it's able to experience a moment of mindfulness itself. When there is a gentle, patient continuity of effort, this is what happens, of mindful awareness. The presence of these factors become more and more noticeable. And when this happens, then we're instructed, we're guided to notice them, to start actually noting them in our experience. Manindra would say, one of our teachers would say, your only job is to be mindful. One time I came to him a long time ago, about 30 more years ago, and it was so hard. It was one of my first retreats. And I was ready to give up. You know, I was ready to go home, as somebody was saying here. I just wanted to get out of this place. But most of the time, it's get out of the place of our, of our own minds, not in the physical place. But I wanted to leave the place that I was at. And I went to him and I said, I can't do it anymore. I, it's too hard to be mindful. It's too hard to do this practice. And he said, I'm not asking you to cut down the jungle. <laughs> you know, he's from uh, that place in India. And he said, I'm just asking you to be mindful. And at the time, I thought cutting down the jungle would be an easier thing to do <laughs> than to be, just to be mindful moment to moment. And he reminded me that the teachers can only show you the way, but you yourself have to do the work. And it, it was as if I was expecting him to do it for me, you know, to actually kind of hold me up, hold my hand, and. Um, you know, just tell me what to tell me about the Dhamma so I could just sit there and agree with him, and that would be it, you know. But just agreeing with what you hear is not enough. You have to really experience it for yourself. So that's related to the Buddha's quote that I first uh, started with You are the light, you are the refuge. There's no place to take refuge but yourself. These factors are not, these factors of enlightenment are not only limited, of course, to the teachings of the Buddha, but the Buddha pointed them out as he did most everything so succinctly, so clearly. At least three times, you know, in one talk, he would say uh, the same thing over and over again, like we do the refuges three times each. You'll notice that with the Buddha's teachings. So, Somebody, a few people today were saying, oh, it so everything sounds so interesting, but I can't catch, catch it all. I forget what you're saying. Don't worry, we'll repeat it many, many times. <laughs> or you'll hear it from others, too, many, many times, not just from us. These factors I see in many tribal and spiritual traditions. Uh, I was raised in the Catholic tradition, and so I, I know about some of these uh, this place of concentration that can be developed with some of the practices I had when I was a practicing Catholic. In Hawaii, there are many Pacific Islanders, and um, we learn from the beauty of their lives a lot. And so I want to tell you a story about how I saw these factors that were brought out uh, to me in, fr from a teaching from one of these tribal leaders that I met. Again, it's, it's always good to tell a story because it keeps you awake. It's not, <laughs> not so theoretical. Once on a very hot day like this, and much more humid in, in Hawaii, it's much more humid, and it adds to the heat. I was in Honolulu, and I was waiting for a friend, and so I went to a museum that was nearby. 
And in that museum, they had an exhibition of tattoos. And these were tattoos that were shown in photographs and also in paintings. I wasn't, I was never too interested in tattoos. And actually, this was, you know, about 25 years ago before it really became popular as it is nowadays. I went into that exhibition and I was, I was just looking around and seeing how interesting, you know, all these colors and shapes and forms and symbols were. And I saw uh, down one of the aisles, there was a huge man, um, a Pacific Islander. And just because I live in Hawaii, I know, I sort of know the difference between a Samoan person as opposed to another uh, kind of a Pacific Islander. Samoans are the really big ones in Hawaii. So this was a guy that was at least six feet five and, you know, over 250 pounds. He was huge. He was kind of far away and he was um, going through the aisles with a young, young girl that was calling him daddy. And I, I heard that. We were the only ones in the whole exhibition, in the whole museum. And so he had a surfing shirt on, one of those shirts that's you know, really open and not covering his, his arms. And so I saw that he was marked from his neck down to his ankles. And I thought, well, you know, here's a living example. Why don't I go up to this person instead of looking at all these pictures? <laughs> I really felt comfortable to do that, so I drew nearer to him. And he was he was fierce warrior in his body build, but his gaze was very kind. So it was really nice to talk to him. And so I asked him some questions, and I was looking at his uh, the markings on his skin, and some of it his skin was still red, and some of it was quite swollen. It looked like it was just recent. So I asked him about it, and he said that. Yes, he had just been through what he called an initiation. I'm not sure if he said that word, but I came away thinking that that's what he had, uh, was telling me about. He said that he was a son of a chieftain from one of the Samoan islands, and that in order to receive the, that leadership, that role from his father who was growing old, he had to go through an initiation of getting all of these symbolic and sacred markings on his skin. And uh, when he started, it was initiation because he said when he started, he was a boy. But when he got through it, when it ended, which took at least three days, he said he felt like he was a man. He had gone through that kind of an initi initiation. Parts of what he told me reminded me of what we go through in the practice, because it isn't easy. It was really painful. So he was put in a hut in the middle of the village. And uh, all around, it was an open hut. And all around him, different parts of the community came, and they chanted during different parts of the day and the night to support him as he went through this ordeal. And the elder men of the community, were they were doing the tattooing or the markings, the sacred markings on his skin. And how they did it was they took the sharpest shark's teeth that they could find. And shark's teeth are really, really sharp. And what they do is they dip it in the soot of a certain tree, of a certain burned sacred tree that they have. And then they tap that soot into the markings that they have put on the skin. He said there were thousands of tappings that he had to go through. Sometimes, you know, different elders would be working at him on him at the same time. And with every tap, he thought he would die. You know, that it was so, so painful. The pain was overwhelming to him. The villagers were chanting, and it helped him get through it. He said each time he did not know whether he would be able to endure. He wanted to give up, 
but he said if he did, it would bring shame to his family and to the lineage that he was holding. And he was a very regal person. Uh, it, it really seemed like that uh, regality and royalness was in his genes. And he also wanted the lineage to continue, of course. He didn't want a weak link to be in his culture. He said, and I'm almost quoting his exact words, he said, the pain was like a burning sensation which was building with every tap. Well, that was just like it was when I was sitting. You know, it was not very different, just the pain in the knee or the back or wherever you feel the meat hook in, in your back when you're sitting. And so as he spoke, I recognized the factors of awakening that were being developed in him because he talked about them the kind of persevering energy that he had to have moment to moment with each tap, the calmness and tranquility that he had because that he just had to be so concentrated on everything that it brought that level of concentration, calm, tranquility into his mind, into his heart. He was able to handle what was going on. And of course the equanimity the ability to not react to what's going on, but just to receive that moment of changing experience and be with it. And of course, he had a very great resolve to be with that experience, and very great awareness was about him. So I appreciated, through hearing his story, the different ways that they have been, these factors have been with us, and in the various traditions that we all have come from, the different ways of, cultural ways that we have been raised in our own lives. And they're pressed, they're available to us. They're not that far away. So these factors are like family. They're like friends working together. Not necessarily linearly, but each one supports the other and each one deepens the others. Manindra would say all the time to me, just be mindful. When mindfulness is there, all the beautiful factors are nearby. All of them come around. So just by, in a way, just by being mindful, you see the others. But sometimes the others have to be uh, practiced and developed in and of themselves. So you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice, meant to me that I have to give myself wholeheartedly to what I'm going through, not just willy-nilly just doing it and hoping that, you know, I get a gem here and there from whatever I'm doing, but really applying ourselves to the practice. So this Dhamma teaching is meant to help you become more aware and knowledgeable of your experience, not to just take it in and let it go into your head but let it help you so that your heart can keep you going in the practice. To recognize these factors when they're there. To recognize when they're weak, when they're strong, when they need to be balanced out by developing another one more. Like for example, when energy is weak, uh, maybe you need to put more energy into the practice. So you too, as I have, can always feel empowered with a healing kind of confidence if you can really pay attention to these factors in your practice. Really know when they're present within you and take refuge in them. So of the seven, there are three energizing factors and they are investigation, effort or energy, delight, Sometimes we experience this as joyful interest in whatever is arising. Those are the energizing. They're balanced by the three stabilizing or tranquilizing factors. And they are calm, concentration, and equanimity. There's one linking factor that's usually the first one that's presented, and that is mindfulness itself. This mindfulness links all of them. It's a natural balance to all of them. 
and it develops all of them to just the right degree that we need to practice in order to keep going. So first I'll start with mindfulness and I'm just going to give a short description of them all. Uh, Steve gave uh, more of a mindfulness talk, mindfulness actually of the defilements in the beginning of, the, uh, of our time here together. And some of the others we'll be talking about more directly and we have already during the course of this retreat together. Mindfulness is not an easy quality to know or to experience actually because we're usually concerned with the object of mindfulness, not with mindfulness in and of itself. Later in practice, when the practice gets really refined, there is the ability for one moment of mindfulness to know the previous moment, just leaving moment of mindfulness. But that's kind of far-fetched for a lot of people. Here we want to explore what mindfulness itself is, what its qualities are, the characteristics, the functions, the manifestations, and I'll mention a few. So it'll help you to have uh, a broader knowledge of them. The deeper knowledge of mindfulness comes from your own experience, moment-to-moment experience. One way that mindfulness is described in the text and in uh, talks that have been given to us is apamada, apamada. It's a Pali word, and um, I'll tell you what it means. It actually means non-negligence, where you're mindful. Just to let you know how important this is, this non-negligence, one time in a two-month retreat, and I think this is the retreat where I first saw Steve many years ago in the, in the 90s or the late 80s. He was a monk, and I didn't know him at all until much later. But um, there was a two-month course, and every day was a talk about apamada, about non-negligence. That's how important and how detailed, for example, one of our teachers is, Upandita. It's why we're so detailed. The Buddha said, this is in the Dhammapada, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. I love that. It's such a good reminder. When someone has a quality of this kind of carefulness, this non-negligence, one feels about them that that stands out much more than their physical appearance. It stands out much more than their um, intellectual knowledge or how many degrees they have behind their name or even how they present themselves. Their ability to be non-negligent, to be really careful about their connection with their own hearts, their connection with the hearts of others, Uh, this stands out so much that you really want to be near that kind of a person. You get the feeling that they're not just looking and observing as a witness what's going on. Sometimes people have used a kind of a, a word that isn't just right for mindful awareness. They use the word witness. Oh, just witnessing what's going on? That's not exactly the most descriptive word of mindfulness because with mindfulness you're actually still participating in life. It's not just witnessing what's going on. There's a full participation. There's, There's that direct connection and knowledge with what you know going on inside of you and also all around you, and you can respond in a wise way because you know clearly what's going on. So it's a very participatory awareness. It's the middle ground between 
on the one side being really identified with what's going on, so identified with what's going on inside of you, like being so identified with your sadness or your anger or your lack of confidence that you, you know, you just kind of fall apart. So that's one side. Uh, when you're not identified or indulging in it. And the other side is just denial, blind denial of what's going on. It's neither of these two ends of the spectrum. It's a very middle path of uh, understanding what's happening, ability to respond, knowing what's going on inwardly and outwardly. It's a very alive, very honest, very down-to-earth, yet fully being a careful person about life, about oneself, about others. I had uh, one experience that always stands out to me. I was attending one of the um, empowerments of His Holiness the Dalai Lama the year that he received the Nobel Prize. I think it was 1989. And um, he was doing these very sacred teachings. In This was in San Jose, California. And there were about 5,000 people present, if that, uh, maybe more. And so as he was going through his teachings and these very sacred chants, that beautiful chants that the Tibetans do, and I, I, don't, I don't really understand it all, but I know it's very sacred and I respect it and love being in the presence of someone so aware like that. So I went with some friends. As he was doing the chanting, in the middle of some very, very sacred chanting, he saw some people getting up and leaving. And it, we had been sitting for a long, long time. So he stopped in the middle of that sacred chanting, and in very, his very beautiful lilting Tibetan accent, he said in English, bathroom? <laughs> he said, need to go bathroom? <laughs> and so the people turned around and said, yes, yes. So he said, OK, let's go to the bathroom stopping everything, and he probably had to go to the bathroom too. So he got up, went out, and everybody, then everybody came back, you know, they rang bells, everybody came back, and then he continued. And that, that was just a kind of, just being mindful of what needs to be done. It's not, it's not always mindfulness moment to moment, it's just mindfulness of what, skill, what needs to be done in the most skillful way. It's a quality of careful connection with ourselves, not to forget ourselves, and with others. Mindfulness is likened to a clean and clear mirror. It says, it says this beautifully uh, in the fourth century uh, sayings of Chuang Tzu. He was a Taoist, and he said, the perfect man or woman uses the mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing. It receives, it refuses nothing. It receives, but it does not keep. It's just mindfulness is reflecting just what is happening in the present moment without adding anything, without uh, making it different than what it is, you know, having that kind of delusion that sees things wrongly. It doesn't distort what's going on. It doesn't dislike or like. It just reflects clearly the moment's experience. And so this results in, in a great deal of confidence when, pe when one is mindful. Because the honesty which comes about with mindfulness is phenomenal. The, the feeling that, the, that one is really honest with life seeing what's going on without distorting the picture, without ignoring the picture, delusion or ignorance, just letting that reflection be known. I would hear Manindra's voice over and over again in instructions. He would say, just be mindful of the predominant moment's experience or the breath without 
complaining about it, without comparing, without criticizing, without adding, without changing, without needing to fix? Can you just be mindful without doing any of that? Of course, it's really hard, but it can be done. In Pali, that ancient language, we use the word sati. In fact, the the way that this um, practice that we're doing is really expressed, and our teachers always remind us, uh, it's not just vipassana. Vipassana is clearly seeing what's happening. It's sort of like the result of sati. Our teachers would call this sati vatana. It's really developing mindfulness in a very strong way. And bhavana means the development of that kind of mind that can uh, just be present moment to moment. Sati means remembering, as Steve said the other night. Remembering to be present with this moment's experience. Or sometimes it's being mindful of a bigger situation. But here in retreat, we're talking more about being mindful moment to moment. It's easy to do this when someone's reminding us, but uh, it's not so easy when we have to keep reminding ourselves. So it takes a lot of repetition. Sati's function is to reflect the present moment so deeply, so clearly and profoundly, that it clearly reveals the transformative, transformative insight into the true nature of reality. It clearly reveals what Steve and I will talk about later in the retreat, the, um, the impermanent nature of all of life, the not-self or conditional nature of all of life, and the unsatisfactory nature of all of life, meaning to say that there is nothing or no situation, no experience in this relative conditional universe and experience of life that will give lasting happiness. That doesn't mean to say that we won't have any happiness. It just means to say that there is no lasting happiness in this conditioned world, except for in the unconditioned. So, as we do the practice, we'll, we're, we'll explain more about mindfulness. We'll, um, we'll have you understand it more from your experiential knowledge. I want to go on to the second factor, which is investigation. And it's the first of the energizing factors of these seven uh, factors of enlightenment. There are three energizing factors. This investigation is activated by mindfulness, it's said. Here in practice, it's the investigation of the present moment. So if we're trying to investigate the past, you know, either psychologically or even scientifically or philosophically, it doesn't really help in our moment-to-moment investigation here on retreat. And that's not what investigation is all about here. It's not investigation of what might happen in the future. So it's really right here, right now. What is the mind looking at? What is the mind experiencing? It's by fully experiencing the present moment's experience that one knows investigation. Sometimes um, in the description of sati, it says in some of the texts, I think it was in the um, Path of Purification, the Visuddhimagga, said that uh, sati is like, it's not like a cork, going back to sati for a minute, it's not like a cork that floats on the surface, but it's more like a stone that it, when, it, uh, when it's on the water, it sinks to the water. It sinks in the water. And that sinking in the water is like really investigating the depth of your experience. That's the kind of investigation that we actually experientially 
feel in our practice here together. It's not when you just, like what we're talking about, noting here in the practice when you experience, for example, anger in the mind or joy in the mind. It's not by just noting it and kind of skimming over it, joy, and then, okay, what's next? You know, anger, okay, what's next? It's not that kind of uh, investigation where you just kind of know it and it's more intellectual. We do the noting so that it can help connect and sustain our attention more to the actual experience. So when this connecting and sustaining happens, this kind of deep investigation can take place. For example, say there's a moment of anger in the mind and we, we can note anger, but we'll do it much more uh, better if we can bring the uh, mindfulness and connect it with the actual experience of anger and as our teacher says, to rub the attention on the experience. It's like taking your hand and put it on the other hand and really close your eyes and feel what it feels like. You're not just calling it, oh, this is the hand, but you're feeling what that hand feels like. This is connecting and sustaining your attention, feeling that experience, rubbing the attention on the experience. So we're not investigating it by thinking about it or talking about it um, or philosophizing or even in a Dhamma way. This one way to investigate, of course, and it's wonderful to do it that way. But here in retreat, we want to actually feel the experience, experience it that intimately that we, mindfulness really knows those experiences, anger, joy, pain in the body, whatever it is, mental or physical. One time I brought a situation up to Sayadaw Upandita and I said that uh, something happened in my experience and I was, I was investigating it in a Dhamma way, you know, saying, oh, this experience in the mind is elemental, just like it is in the body. How elements, one can experience the elemental experience of the body, seeing the elemental nature of the mind as well, the heat element, the fire element, the, how it gets sticky, you know, the water, the heaviness, the water element of that. And he said, through his um, uh, interpreter, he said, stop. And then I just really stopped in my tracks. And he said, if you continue in this way, you will go backwards. It was so much thinking about the Dhamma in that when I, you know, in, in that place of my practice, I didn't need to go there. Really just needed to be moment to moment with the experience really to feel what those experiences were mindfully instead of think about them. So it reminded me to, you know, sometimes there's some Dhamma thinking and that's fine, but when you go overboard, you just end up thinking about it instead of really experiencing it. So that was a good reminder to me. If investigation is weak, doubt arises. The proximate cause for doubt to arise is lack of investigation, lack of this kind of investigation, because it's just in our heads. It's really not experiential. So that's investigation. And now the second energizing quality is effort or energy. And just to speak briefly about this, we all know what the energy is that we need to have in practice it's not the energy to change what's going on. It's not the energy to get rid of it. It's not the energy to gain or to get anything. Because usually when we're doing that, we're striving. We're really trying too hard. It's the energy to be in the present moment. So if you can think of energy as short moments many times, it's really helpful. It's just this short moment of attention, and then another short moment of attention. If you want to know the intensity of energy that you need to pay attention 
with, <coughs> just without moving or without needing to even move uh, your eyes, just pay attention to the feeling of your left hand. Just bring it there for a moment. Okay, that's the amount of energy you need. But that has to happen moment by moment by moment with every arising predominant experience. It's not that much. It just needs to be continuous. And when it's not continuous, that's okay. You know, you drop the thread of mindfulness and then it gets picked up again and you begin again. And most of the time, if you don't get too worried about it, there's not too much <coughs> lost. But there is a lot of loss when you just fret and worry and then begin to think you're not a good meditator. Then you lose a lot of momentum then. I've learned to just pick up the thread again and just keep going. So the third quality, energizing quality, is joyful interest or delight. This emerges out of that gentle, persevering effort that you have with that moment-to-moment -moment, uh, effort in mindfulness. In the, in the text, in the ancient text, I love the um, example it gave. It's, it's a feeling you have similar to a feeling like when you're walking through the bush or through a desert and you're parched with thirst and in the distance you see a lake or a little pool of water and it's not a mirage, you know it's there and your mind gets full of energy just seeing it and you've got interest to keep going and that the ability to just pick up and keep going is right there. It's so available to you. This, um, this joy or this interest sometimes is called rapture because we start feeling these very pleasant and energizing feelings in the body that maybe we hadn't felt before. It's a very a sense of lightness and agility in the body. Uh, the mind is, feels infused also to keep going. The mind feels very workable. There's a lot of confidence that comes at this time. We begin to notice that there might have been some rough and coarse uh, experiences in, in the body, in the bodily sensations, and all of a sudden they become small, smooth and soft and gentle. Same sensations, all, all of a sudden they're very smooth, gentle. There can be a floating and rocking and swaying experience. You might open your eyes and think that, whoa, the body's really moving in a rocking and a swaying in a floating way but you see that the body isn't moving so much. It might be a little bit. It feels sometimes, um, sometimes it's felt like even when I'm walking, I'm walking on water. You know, it's just kind of like you're in a little boat, feeling very balanced and walking along. So these things come up. If you've had them in the practice, you know that these experiences help you go on. It's like, whoa, never felt this before. This is really, really, it's sometimes pleasant, although when it can go on and on, it can get unpleasant sometimes. So these are the energizing factors, investigation, energy, joyful interest in what's going on. And the three stabilizing factors, just very briefly with each one of them. The first one is calm or tranquility. Remember I talked about with uh, this um, joyful interest, it's like seeing water in the distance as you walked through a desert or the bush. But this calm and tranquility feels like, subjectively it feels like, you get to that place and you drink the water. And all of a sudden, 
your whole body and mind feel just so settled. It's not this ener energizing feeling so much anymore where it just feels so, so settled. The mind and body feels uh, very, very cooled out. It starts to feel different. There's an energetic difference between that, that um, energizing feeling, of course, and that tranquilizing experience. This is when uh, rapture smooths out. Restlessness is much more absent now. Um, there's, uh, even when you're moving about, there's a calmness that's still there within you. The mind isn't so agitated. The body isn't so agitated. The mind is getting settled, not scattered so much. It feels like a, a pond of water that previously was a bit stirred up, and now whatever is in the pond is settling to the bottom. So this begins the ability of the mind to see more clearly within that pond, to the depth of that pond of your mind, your heart. And there's a, a different kind of interest happening here, a very calm kind of interest. The ability to receive experience, not to need to make anything happen, but the ability to just receive what's going on is there. There's a delicateness also to this, um, but there's an okayness in the mind, a deep okayness. This is when, in the mind, we start to realize the, um, the need to control anything is futile. And you stop trying to control what, what's happening. Each moment, there's a natural surrender to what's going on. I love this uh, from Kabir. He says, when the eyes and ears are open, even leaves on the trees teach, like pages from the scriptures. This is when we hear a lot from ourselves and from other yogis how teachings from nature you know, come just naturally when there's this calmness because there's, a, there's this ability to see more clearly, more deeply into the nature of the mind. So calm, the first stabilizing factor, and then the second stabilizing factor is concentration. Collectedness of mind. When the mind doesn't feel so dispersed, there, this is when the distraction, the, the mind that needs to go here and there, it's, it's so uh, undistracted that it can stay in, in this satipatthana vipassana, it can stay moment to moment with each object. And uh, on changing objects, it can kind of connect and sustain with one object, and then the next object that arises, it can connect and sustain just enough, just momentarily. This is called momentary concentration, of course, because it's just briefly on changing objects. This stabilizing quality develops out of tranquility and calm. Concentration takes the energy available, gathers it, collects it, and it um, puts it onto one experience at a time, just one experience. So it becomes like a laser beam, in a way, on each experience, kind of going into that experience deeply. I'm talking about a micro-moment, but it happens that way. It just, just knows each moment, one moment at a time. Its function is to collect the mind. It collects the mind so that unifying force has a very, that very strong kind of force that can penetrate each object to the depth. If you have too much concentration in vipassana, you can go into a trance. It begins to be more fuzzy. It's not clear on each object. We get to what is called sinking mind, 
where there is too much concentration and not enough moment-to-moment energy. So this is where you need a lot of balance as you go deeper into your practice. So that's the second of the stabilizing or tranquilizing. And the last is equanimity. And I gave a talk on equanimity the other evening, but it was more about non-reactivity in our day-to-day life. Equanimity has a really important function in uh, these factors of liberation because it's able to, uh, when equanimity is there, true equanimity is not reacting to pleasant experience, pleasant vedana, pleasant feeling. It's not reacting to pleasant experience with attachment. That's where the deepest um, equanimity, what the deepest equanimity, the strongest equanimity is about. It's not reacting to pleasant feeling with attachment. It's not reacting to unpleasant feeling with aversion. It's not reacting to neutral feeling with delusion. So in the mind, there's non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, a very powerful state of mind developed by equanimity, by this non-reactive force in the mind to those qualities which can bring about greed, hatred, and delusion. So this is when every moment of practice, whatever arises, is seen uh, in its true nature. Uh, Equanimity can be felt even when there are um, arising and passing away phenomena, but it doesn't react to anything, of course, because it's equanimity. The mind of equanimity can feel very, very still even when there is a lot of arising and passing away objects. There is a kind of um, an attending force of equanimity nearby. It's described in the text as like raindrops on a slightly sloping lotus leaf. The drops fall and they just simply roll off. Nothing sticks. When there is a, the Buddha says in the Sutta Nipata, when there is nothing in the world that can trigger agitation, then one is free from the pain of longing, from the pain of attachment. So in this equanimity, there's total clarity and really total understanding of what's going on moment to moment. And as I talked about before, it's a jumping point to uh, liberation, to complete liberation, to Nibbana. It's a very exalted state of mind which cuts through delusion and bears the realization of complete emancipation, bears the fruit of liberation. So these are the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment. Mindfulness is the leader. It's the one that connects all and develops all. The energizing our investigation, energy, and rapture or joyful interest. The tranquilizing our calm, concentration, and equanimity. So just like to repeat as the Buddha said, repeat what I uh, offered in the first part of the talk, these words of the Buddha. You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but in yourself. So let's sit for that, with that for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.